This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all-electronic self-driving cars. Visit them online at getcruise.com. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome back, everyone. And uh, just so that I'm sure that I cover my base here, I'm going to share the beginning CE code right off the bat. So we've got that out of the way. Uh, the opening CE code is 34951. 34951. All right. So with this session, uh, we have a presentation entitled The Importance of the RS-15 as a depending discussion led by Kathy Rhodes. So I, I do know she also has someone with her. So Kathy, I'll let you take it over from here. Thank you. I'm Kathy Rote with the Iowa Department for the Blind. I'm the EP director there. And uh, with me today presenting is, Nathan, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Nathan Pullen. I'm also listed as Kathy on the participant list, so sorry for the confusion. I'll, I'll just be Kathy Jr. today. I'm the <laughs> Business Enterprise Program Director for Arizona, uh, and I've been there for about 10 years. And I'm really thankful that we're able to present together because he has some really large establishments in his state, and Iowa is very small in terms of our operations for the most part. Uh, and between us, I hope that we can help everyone find value. I don't know whether the people that are listening are operators but if or vendors is what we call them in Iowa. But if so, we're hoping that this will make uh, be a presentation that helps make sense of how come we're asked for all this information and why are we having to give this data and what, what does it do for us anyway? So we're trying to answer some of those questions. And the RSA 15 is a report that the state licensing agencies are required by the Randolph-Shepard Act to complete each year. It has to be done by December 30th. It has to be done online. And uh, it covers dates from October 1st to September 30th. That's the federal fiscal year. And uh, the intent is to collect accurate data on all vending facilities managed and operating by the SLA under the Act. So thank you for joining us today. We're going to cover very briefly the different areas of the RSA 15, focusing on the ones that we think can give real impact to your program and to makes a difference to operators. And then at the end of each of those sections, we'll have a little time for questions as well as at the end, if there are some. And just wanted to give a little reason why I got excited about doing this is I like to compare my state's program to itself year after year, because then you can see changes and ebbs and flows in different kinds of data. And it helps you pique your curiosity, like, why is this number this way? And maybe there's something we could do to change it for the positive. It's going to be helpful to take a look at the data that we use, because it's going to help the SLA and the ECBV. That's what we call the State uh, Elected Committee of Blind Vendors to monitor the program's health. If we keep the data throughout the year and you track it throughout the year as a running um, total, then you're not getting a crunch time in October or December. Everybody's trying to have holidays. So um, that's kind of an important thing to keep going and your states might ask for things continuously. And the purpose of the Randolph Shepherd is to help generate financial independence. And some of the data that we collect mimics what private sector employers keep. So it's just good practice to um, have our vendors involved because it prepares them for any future endeavors that they might have. And uh, I really encourage every state to involve their elected committee in looking at the figures, noticing trends, and being involved in making a difference. Already, Are we ready to dive in? Everybody's saying yes. Um, yes. <laughs> okay. So the first section on here is earnings and employment, and that is uh, has 21 different line items on it. And this has to do, this is really core stuff for us to be able to evaluate whether we're making progress in certain areas each year. And it's only as accurate as the reports that the vendors turn in. And so if you give us the ac accurate figures, that makes a difference. And as Nathan was saying to me earlier, um, probably the sales figures that we reported over the last several years made a difference in um, showing to the Congress 
that this program is viable and really makes a difference. And if we didn't have these figures to support the RSA program, we may not have gotten the FFRP money. So gross sales is one of the categories. And that's obviously what you get from generating revenue. One of the things that military contracts should pay attention to is it's not how much the vendors take home that you report here, but it's the actual amount of sales that the military site has. And that other, if you put it differently, it skews the numbers. Merchandise purchases, that is something that is supposed to be your beginning inventory, plus any purchases you make, minus any loss or waste, and then your ending inventory. And the change of that is what this is supposed to capture. Many states require an inventory, and that is partially for this reason, that it is important for you as a business person to know how much inventory you really have. If you think you bought a lot and you don't have much there, then you're going to be in trouble. Nathan, do you want to jump in on anything there? There is a component later on that we'll mention about calculating inventory, but essentially this is just your your cost of goods sold is your merchandise purchases, whatever that may be, separate from labor, which will fall later. Um, I just wanted to clarify too, on the gross sales line for military contracts, most of which are labor-only contracts, you would put the total dollar value of the contract or essentially what you build the Army or the Air Force for that labor service. And a lot of states do require that vendors submit their actual invoices to match that merchandise. And most states, I've heard that many, if not most states, also require an actual physical inventory once a year, which if you're not doing it, you probably want to do it. That's pretty standard in in a retail or product-based environment. Gross profit is another category. And if you watch that year over year and you're, you're seeing that it's going down or you're seeing that it's going up, and it's trending, especially, it's not just an anomaly for one year, then that lets you look into other aspects of your business, of your operation to say, where, where is it changing and how come it's doing this? We want to continue it if it's good. And we want to make some changes um, in a different way if it's not doing well. Other operating expenses, general expenses, operating profit, vending machine and other income. So other income that gets paid to you. One of the things that they do ask for that people get confused about is number 15, vendor person years of employment. When I first got here, we were counting. I think her internet froze up here. I think it did. I'll pick up for Kathy and hopefully she will sync back up with us here. Okay, perfect. So the... Uh, the item that she was last speaking about was vendor person years of employment. And this is a somewhat confusing figure. Um, essentially, it is meant to indicate how many operators or how, how many full-time operators or vendors you have running your BEP businesses. Um, it, it does provide a specific calculation process for that. Um, the general thing that you're looking for is that the total vendor person years of employment should come close to equaling the number of vendors or operators that you have with the assumption that they're all running one full-time business. Where you might see it be skewed is that number could be much lower if you have some vendors that are doing multiple facilities because you're shorthanded, or you may see it be higher if you have had a lot of transition and had people that came in or left during the year and maybe counted uh, more than once, so to speak. That's good. And if you have a lot of turnover, then that's a question to ask how come we're having turnover and what can we do to slow that down? Um, the average Hopefully vendor. You see it balanced with the trainees coming in at the end of the report, and that's your reason is that you had new trainees start and that, that pulled your number. <laughs> and that can be an okay thing, right? Yeah. So everything is a reason to look at it. Average vendor earnings is uh, one that we use. In Iowa, there's not a lot of difference between the kinds of vending operations that we have. So using the average vending earnings is a useful tool. One of the things you want to watch out for if you're in a state where they do provide retirement benefits to folks, the retirement benefits that counts as income. So a person may not actually have that much take-home pay. But it, it counts. And so you just be aware that that could be skewed. And um, you want to take that away when you're considering how much money a person's actually taking home. And then, Nathan, you guys use median of net vendor earnings as the most important number. How come? We do. And so that is because, as you mentioned, Kathy, we have some pretty large facilities. We've got a couple of large military dining contracts uh, that are labor-only contracts that 
can be multi-million dollar contracts every year, as well as some really large prison facilities. And so to use the average number is a little bit misleading. Uh, we have facilities of all scopes and sizes. Our average income ends up being over $200,000, and that's not really a good representation. We know that number is skewed artificially high because of those handful of really large facilities that we have. So instead, we use the median income, um, which for us in Arizona, at least pre-COVID, was around $90,000, um, something we're really proud of getting to that that level. Um, but that's been a combination of trying to reduce and eliminate the low-earning facilities or combine them into more viable, larger ones, uh, as well as having some of the, those larger opportunities. But for us, at least in Arizona, the median seems to be a better barometer of success. Um, as that number inches up, that means the people at the lower end of the income uh, spectrum are being lifted up as well, and not just the top end guys. Yes. And so that can be valuable. And, and for, uh, for Iowa, we'll probably combine both of those numbers and we'll just look at them together and see what kind of movement we have. And if we don't have people who aren't earning a lot of money, then we want to take we want to make sure we're taking a good look at their operations individually to see what leeway do they have? Are there some areas of expenses that are that are over the top that we can pull down? And sometimes you can notice that also overall, if, if, if everybody's going down low, then maybe their merchandise purchases as a percentage of gross sales are really high. And you want to figure out how can we reduce our merchandise costs? And there might be some educational opportunities in there. I think the next one we wanted to talk about is number 20 and 21, numbers of persons having a disability employed and then the total number of people employed in the program. When larger organizations look at the Randolph-Shepard program, they will notice what's the impact, not only the blind vendors that we have, but the employees that they have. What kind of impact is this program having on blind people and, and employment in general? So these numbers are important for us to report. And uh, I noticed that there are uh, some vendors who don't, they don't pay for employees, but they're having someone help them. And that person's not getting social security. That person is not covered by workers comp. That person is not listed as a number of employed here. And it also skews how much money you're taking home. If you have a co a partner who's not earning, bringing in any money, that makes you look like you're making more money than you realistically would be if you were paying someone. So we would want you to report that to encourage you to get that person on board. And then let's see what we can do to get your sales up so that you can afford to do that and truly have good representative numbers. Nathan, you had mentioned earlier also, uh, if you do have a number of employees go down, it could be a measurement of growth, like if you're doing better at pre-kidding. That's guess- exactly right. So there, there are some factors to look at here. You can't look at any one number individually. Uh, you really have to take in the whole picture. And so if you are looking, especially using year-over-year comparisons of your RSA 15 reports as a way to analyze your business, don't focus too much on one individual number. Try to take it a holistic view of everything all all in uh, because there are many ways to manage your profitability. Some vendors opt to have a higher labor cost, uh, but that may save them on their food cost, for example, in food service where more prep time uh, results in a lower food cost because you're using whole products, prepping and peeling whole and fresh vegetables and fruits, for example, breaking down your own meats. Others may prefer to buy more pre-made or pre-set items uh, to reduce their labor costs. Some of them may work with pre-kidding in vending, and that may be a way to shave down some of their labor but that may have a a higher level of uh, other expenses because they're paying for the software that allows them to do those things. So a rise in one should hopefully correlate to a decrease in another uh, and if it continue to increase your profitability year over year. And if not, that's what you maybe want to look at or you may be doing something wrong or have opportunities to improve. And I forgot to mention that on the hiring other persons with visual disabilities or any disability, that is all about us walking the talk. So if we believe that people who are blind are capable, do we have other blind people working with us? And that would depend on the size of your operation. But do you have someone else who has a disability? And uh, there are ways that your um, SLA can help you find that out. But just to be aware of that, are we walking the talk of saying that people who have a disability or a challenge, can they overcome that? And if we believe they can, then we we want to hire and, and highlight that as well. 
Absolutely. Um, And it does break out specifically individuals with disabilities as for non-visual and for visual as two separate line items. Uh, That's something that's really important for vendors to capture and share. The agency doesn't have that info on their own. The vendor has to report it. And that means the vendor also has to collect that data from their employees. So there is a standardized um, Department of Labor form uh, that captures this. It's totally optional self-reporting. You can't force your employees to do it, but you can provide them this form or an alternate one that you generate yourself but it essentially asks them to self-disclose. It doesn't ask for anything specific. It just says, do you have a disability? Yes or no. It, it's pretty much as simple as that. It doesn't have to be something they have to bring in a doctor's note or x-rays to prove. They are just noting to you their own diagnosis or, or disability and you factor them in as disabled or not. We're not asking for specifics and not using it any means of discrimination. It's just for us to track whether we're uh, able to pay for the opportunity by employing others in BEP business. Thanks so much. That's all I have for the first section. Are there any questions? Actually, I, I do have a question, and I, I, I don't remember the answer to this, but to the subject you were just talking about for um, employees who have disabilities, and I, I have an employee who has disabilities. Unfortunately, he has a visual disability, and he has other disabilities as well. Does that person count on both sides? I don't remember. I would seek guidance from RSA fiscal services for like Blake David Steele on that to be certain. But my my response would be no. I would just like we don't count vendors multiple times when we're looking at the number of facilities uh, and vendors in the next section here. I would say you count an employee once um, and put them in whichever slot is more applicable. Just like with other uh, with vending facilities that we'll talk about, whatever the primary disability is. If their if their primary disability is visual related, then I would put it as visual. If, if they have a slight visual impairment, but they are a, um, a, a wheelchair user, for example, and have an, another condition, then I would maybe not count it as visual. So that's the guidance I would recommend. Okay. Uh, do you have um, contact information for anybody who asked the question? So that, or, or is there a way that if we do have a question we have to go find the answer to that we can get that back to you or to someone? Good question. I got to think about that for a minute here. Um, <laughs> um, they could send an email to rsva at Randolph shepherd.org and then we can forward it to you. Yes, that's right. Yep. This is your host and you do have an attendee with her hand raised. All right, let's go to that attendee. Amber. Hi, it's Amber Steet from last night. How y'all doing? Hey, Amber. Hi, Amber. Hello. So, <laughs> man, this sounds pretty daunting. I'm actually looking at entering the training program. So, Awesome. I hope this will be something that I really learn learn the ins and outs of during that program. You should. The team that you'd be working with really cares about you being able to be a, a business person. And so part of it is there uh, is your curiosity and your initiative and how much you want to learn about all the different aspects of business. And the more questions you ask, then the more answers that they can give you. So I think if you go in with that inquisitive, open mind saying, this is my business, and you treat it like it's your toddler or your, or your, your puppy, that you're going to give it that kind of attention that um, it requires, then I bet you will be fine. Okay. I would add on to that and mention that you don't actually have to do all the work for this daunting report. There's SLA staff that will do it. So you have a small role. Yeah, you do a monthly reports and you provide data at your own business's level. What you do is important. And that's why we're having this meeting. So yeah, staff person like Nathan or I will actually do this report. This report, you don't have to do. Right. That will be handled by the agency. They they essentially take the monthly reports that you and your fellow vendors send in. And so this report is, is a way to capture both the business activities of the BEP businesses that are run by the vendors, as well as the SLA operations. Uh, so this first section was very much focused on the facilities and the income and earnings as an aggregate of all of the BEP businesses run in your state. Separate from that, it goes into these other sections that relate to the number of types of facilities, site surveys, and actions that are taken um, by the agency, including expenditures and how the program spends money on equipment and repairs and the like. So we're going to get into that next. And Amber, SLA is a state licensing agency. BEP is Business Enterprises Program. So every state uses different terms. And uh, BEP is what we call our state's operation of the Randolph Shepherd Act. Dan Sipple here. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. First, let me thank you for both for coming on and sharing your wisdom, your knowledge on this. Um, you've touched on this already, but I want to reemphasize it because I think it's so important. 
Okay. Well, I'm going to ask a question first, and then let's come back to Dan when we get that technical glitch worked out. This is more of my personal curiosity. Uh, so we've, I believe we've come through the reporting for uh, our RS-15 since the pandemic has struck. And I'm curious what the two of you saw in, for instance, in, for sure, in hired help. What happened to those operators in that hired help number? Did it shrink dramatically for you folks, or was it kind of unchanged? I'm, I'm just kind of curious. I don't believe ours changed much. We might have gone down one or two. Okay. But I don't think that it changed much. But then we have probably four vendors who aren't paying anyone. So um, sure, it, we didn't have the opportunity to shift so much as others. I yep. think the hours paid went down. Okay. And hours went down significantly in Arizona. Uh, but again, we have some larger facilities, including some large food service facilities. Our total employees uh, employed by our vendors was 280 in fiscal year 19. That was 169 uh, in fiscal year 20 in the most recent report. So wow. we lost over 100 uh, staff. Um, hopefully, we'll see most of those return as facilities slowly reopen, but currently all of our food service locations, for the most part, are still closed, as you would expect, but vending and military operations are still going, so that's what is keeping us afloat for now. Yeah. Can we go on to number two? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's vending facilities and vendors, and I just wanted to call out how we calculate vending facilities and vendors. A vendor is a single person. So if a, ver if a vendor operates multiple facilities, we still count them as one person. That's a separate kind of reporting when we report a facility. A facility is either one building or if it's a multiple site, multiple stops on a route, the facility is considered a state, a federal, a municipal the route is one facility, and it's considered a state facility or a municipal facility or a federal facility based on where the majority of the income is coming from. So if you put all those, all the city money together, all the municipal building money together, all the federal building money together, if the federal building money is the most, then that's where you count it. If you had a post office and you had a GSA, General Services Administration, federal building, then you would say, where is it? the most there if you're needing to break that out further. Correct. And the, the broad higher level categories are either, it's either federal or non-federal is the first level of distinction. And there is a, a breakdown a little bit further uh, later for state, county, or municipal, as well as private sites. Uh, but the, the main distinguisher is federal versus non-federal. Uh, and a big portion of that is that that categorization also ties back to the use of the funding. Um, you'll see this later on in the section for uh, expenditures of funds, and that is because there are different rules as to what funds can be matched and what purposes they can be used for. It varies by state, of course, but in many cases, federal unassigned income, uh, if they have that opportunity, is usually accrued to operator or vendor benefits, vacation, retirement, sick pay, uh, health insurance reimbursement, and the like, whereas the non-federal uh, locations or rest areas often accrue uh, in a way that can support the agency in terms of uh, paying staff and buying equipment and things like that. So, of course, every state is different, but it is important to break those down because they do have different permissible uh, spending and matching sources. And it's kind of interesting if you're if you're wanting to get to know different kinds of states. Nathan tells me that they primarily run off of set aside, like their entire program runs off of set aside. And our program runs mostly off of state dollars that are matched with federal government dollars. That makes a difference on how you spend your money. It definitely does. And it also gives you, uh, in many ways, a higher level of uh, accountability to your vendor committee when you are operating off of set-aside in terms of uh, transparency and sharing these reports. So if anyone didn't know, these reports are all publicly available. You can actually log into the, our, the, the Federal uh, Department of Education Rehabilitation Services site and view or download all of the RSA 15 reports uh, for all of the states and for going back, I think, up to 10, 10 years or so. So it is publicly available information that is out there, and you can easily take a look at it if you are interested or want to learn more about it. And every state should be sharing on a quarterly basis with the, with the vendors, the RSA 15 information. And, and then at the, at the end of the year, of course, hopefully going over that with a little bit, in a little bit more depth and making sure that every vendor has that information to consider. Absolutely. The third section is vending locations under the Interstate Highway Program. And 
that's just paying attention to how you're operating the highways. So, and we're not going to really go into that much because it's very similar to calculating how we did it before, but just to know that you have to pay attention to what you're doing with your highways in your highways, who's doing it. And you have to report those things accurately. And that is important, especially as we're trying to protect that um, provision for blind people. I believe a portion of that data is is extracted by Department of Education and shared with Department of Transportation because there are a lot of special laws and regulations around rest areas because they are primarily on federally funded property or obviously federally funded highways and and interstates. Uh, And so that's why there's a separate section on reporting for highway rest areas specifically, and they want to capture uh, detailed information on whether those facilities are being operated directly by vendors or if they're being subcontracted. And if they are subcontracted, where do those funds go? Do they accrue to the agency, uh, to the BEP program, or do they accrue to an individual vendor? And that's why we ask for that information separately as a state. If you have a rest area, you will report those funds separately. Do we have any questions on that area before we move? This is Dan Simpleback again, a little technical glitch. I got cut off, but uh, I just wanted to reemphasize a point on, on the dis- disabled employees. Um, and I've, in my career, I had uh, several, uh, quite a few uh, disabled employees. And on a couple of occasions, those employees did not want me to disclose their disability. So I, but uh, you do not have to disclose the type of disability. You just have to disclose that they are disabled and uh, their type of disability uh, can still remain confidential uh, to protect their privacy. Yes. And they don't even have to, if you have a disability, you are not obligated to report that. That is an optional thing. So if you feel safe enough to do that reporting, that's helpful. But if a person, for some reason, does not want that to be made publicly known, there is no legal obligation for them to do that. But it is, it is okay for an employer to ask. Yeah, yeah. And I always, and I say, and and one of the situations was um, they had a serious disability, but it was very well controlled with medication, and they were an excellent employee. But they didn't want they didn't want that disclosed for obvious reasons. Sure. And so mm-hmm. we, I just said, hey, we got. I, I got another disabled person and let it go at that. All right. So section four, uh, this is the exciting accounting stuff that we all love, uh, program (laughs) expenditures by source of funds. So again, this is essentially a breakdown of the, the money that was spent by the BEP program throughout the year for BEP operations. So there are several sections. It captures uh, individual lines or rows for the purchase of equipment, for maintenance of equipment, replacement of equipment, refurbishment of facilities, management services, fair minimum, retirement and pension, health insurance, paid sick leave or vacation, stocks and supplies, other expenditures, and a total. And then at further, I'll talk about these a little bit more, but this also then breaks those down by the source of funding for these uh, with columns uh, going sideways that break out the total dollar amount and the amount of the original funding source, because these are usually matched expenditures. So typically funded by set-aside state funds, uh, could be unassigned income from either federal or non-federal locations, um, other sources of funds, and then the federal matching portion and, and then the total dollar amount. So looking at the very beginning of this, just to kind of describe, uh, to differentiate between some of these, because I did mention equipment multiple times. Equipment is the biggest expenditure in most cases of a state agency. Vending machines are not cheap. Cafeteria equipment is certainly not inexpensive either. Um, so the purchase of new equipment is meant to be used for new equipment uh, in new or existing facilities. So if a piece of equipment did not previously exist because either you didn't have a service in that location or you're adding new uh, new processes or new equipment to an existing site, that is considered new equipment. So new purchase for the first time didn't exist previously. This could be a situation where you had a combo vending machine in the past and you pulled it out and replaced it with a snack, separate snack and soda machine. Those are two new pieces of equipment. It's not replacement equipment. There is a further line down for replacement equipment, which is meant to be uh, a machine that it, or piece of equipment that is replacing obsolete or broken equipment. So if one, one item fails and you pull it out and replace it with a new one, then that is replacement equipment. So you do have to differentiate. Even though the funding sources for these are typically the same, the federal government likes to know the detail of where we're, we're spending and how we're spending. And this is a useful factor for the committee to look at as well, because it helps you to 
understand how much is being spent towards program growth. In general, you can think of new equipment as being growth of the program. You're either developing new business facilities or you are expanding and improving existing ones. So that is somewhat a measure of growth, whereas replacement of equipment is more of an ongoing cost of doing business to keep that that equipment operating. Tied into that as well, the line in between is for maintenance and equipment. So that's your maintenance and repair costs if those services are paid for uh, by the state uh, or by the program. This is where those repair costs are captured. Uh, every state has different processes for this. Some states have a deductible of some sort or the, op- the vendors pay for their own. Other states uh, take care of all of the repair costs. In Arizona, for example, we pay for all of the repairs of our equipment. Uh, we actually have a couple of repair guys on staff who do our own work for us where we can, as well as subcontractors um, for larger projects or things outside of our scope. Um, and mm-hmm. so we do pay for that. We do use set aside uh, and it is a matched fund. So you're able to see the dollar amount. And this is an important factor as well, because if you see your maintenance and repair costs growing over time, that may mean that you are working with a lot of older equipment and may need to start strategically planning to replace some of that, uh, even proactively before you incur expensive repair costs. Um, An example is that it's often not cost effective to replace compressors in vending machines once they're eight plus years old. That's a typical service life. We try to have a recurring schedule where we go through uh, on an eight to 10 year schedule to replace older equipment before we end up in an expensive repair situation. So you see often a trend where either new equipment will go up and maintenance will go down or the inverse. And that helps you to make strategic business decisions as an agency uh, about how to manage your equipment and purchase processes. A little bit further down from this going on to line four uh, is refurbishment of facilities. This is generally not done a lot, but this is essentially construction and remodel type work being done in a facility. Um, RSA is generally clear that they don't want uh, us to invest funds in those things because BEP doesn't usually own the building. And so it's generally expected that the facility or the building owner is going to take place in uh, in running those uh, types of expenses. But there are some cases where it's appropriate. And this is where you would report those types of refurbishments of facilities. Management services, just sort of a catch-all. This actually captures all of the expenses of the agency. So the, the salaries and the costs of running the program and the program staff, uh, as well as other management costs. It could be things like licenses, permits, uh, different operating services, um, copy machines, printing equipment, and the like uh, that, that it takes to run your office, so to speak. Um, There's also a line there for fair minimum. Um, this is where we capture any payout of fair minimum claims that were filed by vendors throughout the year. We've been fortunate in Arizona that we haven't had one of these for about five years now. uh, And that's been a proactive effort on our part to uh, reduce the number of low-end facilities or combine several of them together to make a more viable facility. Uh, And as a result, we haven't had those fair minimum claims. Uh, This is another good barometer for agencies to look at is that if you're frequently having those situations, you might have facilities that you need to reconsider whether it's truly a viable opportunity for a vendor. And for Amber, who's new and anybody else, that means if there's a vent, if, if this is the average amount that people are making and there's a vendor who's not making a certain threshold, then, then you're able, if you have gotten certain permissions and have the funds to do it, you can take some money from the pool and you can pay, pay that to that person so that they are at least making as much as whatever the minimum person should make. The intent is that if you are all out there working and running a business, you're putting in your 40 plus hours a week, you should be able to make as much as you would at at any other job. So if you're not making at least minimum wage and running your BEP business, that's not fair and you should be provided an opportunity to to make a viable living. And two things I'd like to point out is the um, RSA assumes that everyone's working at least full time. Maybe that's not right, but... No, um, No, you're right. That is correct. That, and, and a business person typically will work more than 40 hours if you own your own business. So depending on, on your environment, some environments might keep you at 40, but uh, at least 40 hours a week would be what is expected. And RSA is anticipating that that amount of money you're bringing in is based on a 40-hour work week. So if you have some part-time people, that kind of skews your numbers too. And also, one of the things you had mentioned earlier, Nathan, is that we want to um, you consider your purchase of equipment plus your replacement equipment together as a pot. And consider that against the maintenance of equipment to see how much you're moving. And I like that you guys track expenditures per machine so that you know over time when it's time to replace it. And that's, that's such a cool way to help you have a barometer for whether you need to start moving towards purchasing more equipment. 
Thank you. Uh, so then we'll go on to, uh, I believe we just finished for a minimum. Uh, several of the next items here are often not applicable. It kind of varies by state and how they are set up. There is a line, individual line items for retirement and pension programs, health insurance, and for paid vacation and sick leave. Each one of those are uh, items that m- essentially cannot be matched. They are unmatchable expenses. There are no federal grant monies attached to those. They can be paid for uh, if your committee elects to do so and funds are available from federal or non-federal unassigned or from set aside. But again, any of these are unmatched and the process for implementing and administering those programs, it's something that has come up with uh, through active participation between the vendor committee and the BEP uh, agency. So if you have these, if they apply to your situation, then they would be marked down on on the report under whatever source of fun, unmatched funding they come from. Um, in Arizona, for example, we have a retirement program uh, that accrues from a small amount of federal unassigned locations, mostly some rural area post offices. Um, and so that amount gets accrued, unmatched, and distributed out to our vendors annually as a, a small retirement contribution. Uh, we also have a health insurance reimbursement program that we fund out of our set-aside. It is also unmatched, uh, so it does have a significant effect. Uh, one thing that you see as you're looking through all of this, and especially when you hear the comparisons of where the source of funding is, um, it, it is very evident what value the match portion has. And so when I say match, for matchable expenditures, most of the funding does come from the federal government. Um, 21.3% is your own program funds, often set aside or state funds, and 78.7% of that expenditure would then come from the federal government um, for anything related to equipment and operations that is not something that's a direct benefit or payment to the vendor, like the insurance and, and retirement programs. So everything else in terms of maintenance, equipment, uh, and inventory, for example, or in, and management expenses, well, for the most part, are all matchable expenditures. And you really see the value uh, as a, a vendor, I think, and when we share these reports with our vendor committee, I know that they see the value in their set-aside contributions. We do have set-aside in Arizona. Um, one of the higher ones in the country, I believe, we're at a 20% set-aside rate, which is a, a high tax rate uh, to many. And, and there is value, though. So we like being able to share that detail and show that, yes, though you are paying that amount, um, and it is one of the higher ones in the country, you get a lot of value out of it because we are essentially getting millions of dollars in federal money to match with a fairly small amount of set aside funds to continue to grow and operate the program. So the next section is initial stocks and supplies. This is where you track inventory funds responsible or initial inventory that you provide to a vendor. That could be for a new vendor starting out in a new location or if they've had additional sites or components added to their business and they need startup funding to run that business. Um, So that is also not used uh, from federal uh, unassigned, but it can be used with match funding and set aside funding. Number four. That's distribution and expenditure of program funds from vending machine income and levied set aside. And that, Nathan, I think you were going to. I will. Yeah. So this is essentially a a continuation of the prior section. So the section four is the program expenditures by source of funds. That's the breakdown of equipment repairs insurance and so on. This next section, number five, is the distribution and expenditure program fund. So it's sort of a total dollar amount of the prior as well as an account balance. So to describe the way that the form looks, it's sort of a a spreadsheet style format with a grid. And essentially it has your your main accounts, um, which would be things like set aside, unassigned, non-federal and unassigned non-federal income. So one of each for state and for federal funds, as well as other state provided funds that you may have. And it tracks a balance. So you, you indicate the account balance at the beginning of the year, the funds that are added during the year. So that could be set aside funds that were assessed or the collection of revenue from federal or non-federal unassigned vending income, as well as the output. So then the funds available are totaled up. We indicate what is distributed to vendors. That is usually distributed to vendors in the form of those benefits that I mentioned earlier, such as retirement programs, health programs, uh, as well as vacation and sick pay, and uh, fair minimum is included in this as well. Um, And this is an important factor because that helps to calculate the true income or receipts to the vendors by looking at both their uh, business earnings as well as funds provided to them for other benefits of the program. So this is an important thing to consider when you're looking at that top level information of earnings as well. And there is a line there that factors in total uh, receipts to the vendors from these retirement and other benefit programs. So again, you have your beginning of the year, 
your funds added, uh, funds available, amount distributed to vendors, and then the amount expended. Those are the funds that you actually spend out on the purchase of equipment or repairs and the like. And then it to- shows the total number at the end of the year. Uh, we call this carry forward. So essentially think of it as your account balance or your savings account. You have to have some level of funds to be able to get that federal match. Otherwise, you don't. if you don't have yours to spend, you can't get the federal funds. Uh, so most states have some level that they try to maintain as a minimum that they carry from year to year to have sort of a cushion uh, and make sure that they have ongoing operations available to them. Uh, every state is different in how they administer that. We have a, an agreement with our vendor committee in Arizona that we like to keep a minimum of about 500000 in our set-aside account. That's been our historical amount, and we've been able to do that. Up until COVID, we actually spent almost all of it. Well, we did spend all of it and then some in terms of support payments to our vendors during that time to try and keep their businesses afloat. So um, the the fund served its purpose. It was there as an emergency rainy day fund and it rained and we had to use it. So it is important to have those funds available if you have the opportunity to do so. And now we're going to be in a situation for the coming year or maybe longer um, that we know we're going to have to make a lot of strategic business decisions and really limit our number of site surveys and new business growth so that we can rebuild that capital fund and have it available for the future again. And in Iowa, I just want to, because this to me is um, kind of like a what am I getting for my money kind of section that, that operators can look at and say, I'm, I'm putting this in, this is money set aside for us. So how, how is it best used? And in Iowa, we just started set aside last year. So we don't have a lot in the way of the cushion yet, but the concept is if you get, if you do get that money in there and there is, like you said, a catastrophe or there's a low budget year, um, then this is money that you can, can use to help, you get through it. And um, I'm excited that we have set aside and I'm excited to see all the things you guys do with it. Any questions on this area? Seeing none. The next section is number six, the number of sites surveyed. And to me, this is kind of an exciting area for um, the vendors to be able to pay attention to and also to encourage both your SLA and your vendors or your operators to go out and do some recruiting of new sites. New sites surveyed, and how many times are we going out and looking for opportunities? How many times are we evaluating whether something might be a good fit? And the SLAs uh, are obviously charged with doing this because there's a number here that we have to fill out. But in several states, the vendors are keeping their eyes open for opportunities. Across the street, there's a new company going up. Down the street, there's a new post office coming in. Someone mentioned caucus coffee service in my building. What does that look like? And so if you have everybody on the eye looking out for things, opportunities, this is an area where you can kind of get a a feel for that. And along with that, in this section, it talks about sites surveyed, which means you actually go out and see it, sites accepted by the SLA. So you might not accept a site if you don't have the money to put the equipment in there. And It has sites that are added to to existing facilities to grow that facility as well as brand new operations that have never existed before. It also talks about whether or not you've contracted it to a third party. And a paper did just come out from RSA that talks about third party contracts. And so I encourage every state and operator to take a look at that to make sure that we're doing it correctly going forward. There's also a section of sites not accepted, and there's infeasibility of the site. It's not going to be viable for us. There's a lack of available SLA funds, a lack of qualified vendors, and then there's another category called number of sites denied to the SLA. I hope that that doesn't happen often, but if something's denied to you, then we need to figure out how come they don't want us, and what is it that we need to do to either change the perception of our operation to change what we can offer, or maybe we need to position ourselves in a more competitive way so that people want us to go there. Each state's going to kind of have their own measurement as to what's considered a site that you want to have, and that's something that each state probably wants to check periodically, given the changes in technology, given COVID, who's going back in, who's not, whether sites that used to be viable are going to continue to be viable, and whether these sites that you had your eye on are still going to be good opportunities. 
There's also an item on here for survey, uh, surveyed sites with a decision pending that doesn't necessarily get used a lot, but it's something that they added uh, to the form a couple of years ago, actually. And it is occasionally helpful. Where I find myself using that is often uh, with the Department of Veterans Affairs. So they are not always the best about working with us, but there is a legal requirement in place that they notify us when they have a new entity coming online. So we'll get a letter that says, hey, we're building a new clinic in this town, uh, this location, it'll be open in three years from now. Are you interested or not? And you have no information on it. So Mm -hmm. you just have to say, yes, we will do it. And then mark it down as maybe a question mark site survey. And hopefully they follow up with you when the place is actually built. So that's the type of place that you can put decision pending because you don't have the information to make a decision or even do the full survey, but you know, an opportunity will be out there when they, when they get to that point. Thanks, Nathan. Anything else people want to ask in that realm? Actually, I, I do have a, a question here, and I'm not and I'm not asking it to, to start a fire or anything else. I, I, I'm just curious. On the site surveys, um, how do I ask this? Uh, is, is there ever a minimum that, that uh, the RSA would look at and say, well, there should be X much activity to states? that they should be looking for new locations. Is there any minimum that you know of for that kind of thing? You mean like a facility is bringing in a small amount of money and RSA would say that's too small and you need to go looking? More to the fact of, and I don't have this complaint in our state at all, but, you know, I hear things sometimes that maybe states aren't being, um, aren't doing any looking at all for new opportunities. And I guess my question is, is there a minimum that that the states are required to spend so much time looking for new opportunities, I guess? Um, no, does that make sense? I'm not aware of that. Okay. No, there, sure. there, there's no published requirement. They, they okay. may have, RSA may have their own internal metrics that, you know, there's a red flag raised. If you have, you know, two years in a row with zero surveys, they might wonder what you're doing. Okay. Uh, but, you know, every state is unique and every state is different. There's some states True. with some really large programs yep. um, that might be about as built out as they can possibly get. There's not a lot of new government buildings being right. built for the most part. So you, you can only get so big. So, but that's an opportunity as well to, to mark down and show that you're expanding in other ways. If your state allows for you, if your regs allow for you to operate in private businesses, maybe you start to focus on that area or, you know, micro markets or something new if you are built out to, to capacity with other types of businesses. And Scott, that's one of the reasons that the RSA requires that the RSA 15 data is shared with the operators and the elected committee because it is incumbent upon them to really be vocal. If they right. don't see growth and they think they need it, that they need to be vocal and um, enlist support so that if they want to have more growth, and they also should be proactive and not just say, hey, go get me a site. They should be thinking themselves of innovative ways that we can do business, innovative things. It, they are entrepreneurs. That's what this is existing for. It's a partnership. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're kind of preaching to the choir a little bit to me, but just so the folks understand that. So, yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity to preach because you never <laughs> know who needs to hear it. Right. <laughs> Good question. Thank you. Well, also, if there is a state that the BEP staff are not doing anything and you've made complaints to them and they aren't following through, I think it's particularly happening in the last year or so because of COVID. What can vendors do? Who would they contact about a complaint? RSA? RSA has agreed uh, the Randolph Shepherd Act and actually 35 CFR 395, and I don't know what section it is. I want to say 14, and I'm probably wrong, but that has a grievance process that an individual could take. The um, Part of the duty of the elected committee of blind vendors is to be an advocate for vendors. So they should know this thoroughly and they should be able to encourage someone who has a legitimate concern to go through it. But it does have an obligation. It's not a whimsical thing you do. You need to provide data for how come you're thinking this. So there is a grievance process that anyone can go through and and it can't be stopped at the state level. If the state doesn't, if they're not happy with what the state does, it has to go on to the federal. I, I would add to that, though, that I, I would 
highly encourage everyone to try to work with the state agency and the staff. There may be perfectly legitimate reasons why they're not doing surveys. It may be because Mm -hmm. they just know they don't have funds available to buy the equipment. There's no point going out and promising a building they're going to get a vending machine and then saying, oh, sorry, we can't afford it or, or other possible reasons. But at least in Arizona, one thing that we do is that we actually encourage our vendors to do or be involved in site surveys and their own business development as well. So um, they don't do the full survey, but we encourage them to go out and meet with private businesses if they're out on their vending route and they're servicing an IRS building here and there's a, a build, an office building next door. Stop in, hand them a business card, build a relationship and, and offer services. And if we have funds available, you know, we can at least here, we can place equipment in private sites. And that's a way to build up and expand your business. So the vendors can be directly involved with this and have opportunities to grow their business um, as long as their agency is able to support that. So if you come to your agency with uh, an opportunity in a survey, I'm sure they would at least be willing to go through uh, and complete the survey on the back end and and meet with the opportunity and find out what they can do. I want to really echo that because if, if vendors are dissatisfied with anything, that if you, they are doing that from one vantage point, and unless they have checked with the S- SLA and have really examined the entire thing, I like to use the idea of a, an apple. If you cut an, an apple in half and you, you face it towards someone, one person's looking at a white apple and one person's looking at a black apple. I mean, I'm sorry, red apple or green apple, but mm-hmm. you're going to have totally different viewpoints and it's the same apple. So unless you go all the way around and get all the data and find out how come people are making a decision, then all the grumbling, all the time that you would take going through a grievance is a waste of everyone's time that could have been prevented had you really worked together up front. It's always the key. Always the key is to work together first. I, I can't encourage people enough to make sure that you've done that. And if, if things aren't satisfactory at that point, then we look at alternatives, but always make that effort to everybody to work together. And that's when things can happen. Absolutely. Seven, vendor training. So vend- vendor training is a little bit different in every state, uh, but this is meant to capture your entire uh, overview of your vending uh, or or operator training program. Uh, and that includes both new licensees and tra- trainees coming in for the first time, as well as ongoing training provided. So this indicates the number of individuals that completed a training program in during the year. Again, every state is going to be different for this. As an example, our training program is about six months long in Arizona, and you just indicate the number here that completed the training. For us, the barometer that we use or, or the metric that we use is if the training was both they completed their their coursework and were licensed. So if they were licensed uh, and certified, um, that's the the line too. So you indicate the number uh, of that completed the training. You indicate the number that are actually placed in a facility, or if they're just certified or licensed and awaiting placement. And that is how you indicate where they end up. There will oftentimes be a little bit of carryover from year to year, so you don't necessarily have the complete picture from one report. Often you will find that you'll have individuals because of the the cutoff of the federal fiscal year at the end of September. If someone is in class and, and finished before that, they may not be placed until several months after. So you may not see a placement in a facility until the prior, excuse me, the following year's report. You may have to look at them both to see two years in a row to see the full picture. But vendor training captures the number of individuals trained, placed, awaiting placement, uh, as well as a few other catch-all categories if they are uh, perhaps employed by another vendor in while well, they're waiting placement of their own. And I just want to throw in that a lot of, I think a lot of people in general say, I've made it to this point, I've got certified, I'm licensed, and I'm done learning. And the RSA 15 really indicates that you are not done learning when you've completed the program, that it has the next sections that Nathan's going to talk about really talks to the point that RSA believes that there's continuing education that's important to stay viable. And that's something to really hone in on so that a person doesn't kind of get easy in the kind of role that they've been doing for years, but uh, they know that there's more to learn. Definitely. So the next section refers to ongoing training, and there's a few categories for that. Uh, You indicate the number of vendors that are provided in-service training, upward mobility training, as well as conference attendance and food safety. So the breakout for this in-service training uh, is meant to be sort of a low-level, short-duration training. It's often something that's done at your annual vendor conferences, uh, where you may have a speaker come in and, and do a brief training on 
customer service or merchandising or a new service such as micro markets or mini markets or things of that nature. There is a different level uh, for actual upward mobility training, which would be more like taking actual classes or online training. Those could be Hadley modules. They could be other uh, more detailed or multi-day event training. An example that I'll share is that uh, last year, pre just pre-COVID, uh, we had a group come out uh, of national level micro market consultants um, from the translucent group. They were the ones that were slated to do the training at uh, blast last year, I believe um, that got canceled, but they came out and spent a couple of days with our vendor group, teaching everyone the full process of developing, implementing and servicing micro markets. So that would be something considered an upward mobility training. If a vendor didn't already have that skill set, this would be a new opportunity for them to learn and to expand and grow their business in a way that they had not operated previously. So that's the differentiation between upward mobility or just a lower level in service. You also report the number of vendors that are participating in national consumer-driven conferences. Um, those would typically be national conferences like NABM or this RSVA, Sagebrush, NAMA, Blast, uh, and so on. Um, so re really, you're just totaling up the number of vendors that attended those events successfully uh, and indicating that on the report. Um, one thing that I'll touch on, uh, because it's a, just a frequent question, is how are those things paid for? It is permissible to use uh, program funds for operator vendor attendance at those. This is a, a state-specific issue, of course, and it depends on your budget. We do allow for it here in Arizona. We pay for it out of set-aside with federal match, and we include the request for that operator travel for these vendor conferences in our federal pre-approval budget packet that we do each year when we're getting capital equipment uh, purchases pre-approved. So we go through that process, and what we do is allow our vendors to uh, request attendance at a conference. They go ahead and pay for everything themselves. And if they successfully attend and complete the conference, uh, then they can submit back to us for reimbursement and we reimburse them at this, uh, at the state travel rates, essentially. So they're almost treated like a state employee in that respect. They're, they have the same, uh, hotel and, and meal dollar amount caps as I do as a state employee. And that's our reimbursement process but it would be tracked here to indicate that they attended those conferences. Um, it also has a line item here to indicate those that were certified or recertified through a food safety program. So this is a higher level uh, management type course like you would get through the National Restaurant Association or uh, serve safe manager certifications. This doesn't mean smaller level, uh, you know, hour long courses. This is a full high level management certification. Questions on that? Okay. Uh, next is, uh, we're almost done. We have eight. Section eight is the last one, and that is state and nominee agency personnel. There are some states, theoretically, that might not want to operate the BP program themselves, so they have a nominee who does that, someone on outside, they're outsourced that role. So that's what the nominee means. So anyway, this is looking at the state and the nominee agency personnel, and it calculates by FTEs. And if you're a, a state licensing agency, you don't count it by the number of positions you have. Like we have three positions, but last year we had, I think, 3.12 actual FTEs because we had a little bit of overlap. We had a retirement. So we had two people there at the same time and it increased our FTEs. So you do want to calculate that your accounting people are probably going to, to calculate for your state how many what your FTEs are for the amount of staff you have allocated to this. And Nathan was saying how they have, they have marketed, I mean, they have a different group of people, not just these three that are doing work for BEP. So um, you, you could have other people are coming in and helping and they count that as FTEs too, if their time as a state employee was allocated to BEP's work. And that's usually just an example. If you have, if your state agency has a smaller, you know, BEP staff, you may still have individuals with your, your higher level state agency that does some administrative work on grants and contracts or financial reports and things like that. So if they are, if they are time charging to your program, their time has to be reflected in that cost as well, even if they're not a direct employee. Great. Thanks. And then it asks about training. So the expectation of RSA is that you will train your staff uh, and make sure that they also are having continuing education. They ask about how much training have they had related to blindness, business management, and aspects of the Randolph Shepherd facility program. So if you went through a Hadley course, if you went, uh, we have a, a adjustment to blindness sessions that we have every day at the Department for the Blind in Iowa. 
and business management. If you go take a course from another organization, that kind of thing can work. National Consumer Driven Conferences, who has also, again, received certification or recertification in food safety. And we were just asking to get our operating agreement revised. And one of the questions they said is, do you teach, do you encourage people or how have you, how have you taught food safety? So they do pay attention to how you're, how you're handling this with your, both your staff and your operators. And one of the cool things, I think that if you do have people that are going to these things, uh, to track that throughout the year so you're not doing a last-minute hit of asking everybody to remember it going all the way back. I have a simple Excel form that has all the RSA 15 um, items on it, and then next to it I can type in so-and-so went to this, so-and-so went to this, and have that um, ready for the end-of-the-year report. And stealing Nathan's thunder, what do you guys have people do after you pay for them to go to a conference? And they come back. That's, that's a great point. So when we, we have determined that if we're going to support the attendance, we want to make sure that everyone gets the most out of it, not just the individual, but the group. So if you are an Arizona vendor and you go to one of the, the big events that we've paid for, we ask you to come back to the next month's vendor meeting and, and sort of give your book report and share with the class what you experienced or what cool new things you learned or what new products you saw. Because not everyone can take time away from their business or, or spare that expense to be able to attend these things. So we want to make sure that everyone uh, gets as much out of those events as we can. And I think that that concludes the RSA 15. Uh, so if we're available for questions, I think we have a few minutes if anyone has questions. Fantastic. Well, start off, I have a question and then we'll see if we've got some audience members who would like to ask some questions as well. Um, on this last section you were talking about, and for um, for for instance, your your people in Iowa, Kathy, or or for uh, the Nathan, the the your uh, your staff in Arizona, do you have a requirement for um, how many hours those folks uh, do training? Um, your staff would do training or not training? Um, Going to conventions and what, whatever the extra things they do besides working with, with the blind managers, is there a minimum requirement you have? We don't have a minimum requirement. Our position description, like our the actual legal position description mm -hmm. questionnaire, uh, I'm sure has something about being uh, staying staying current with um, what's what's trending what's important. So there is some sort of statement around that, but we don't have particular hours assessed to it. We try and alternate folks having the opportunity to go learn. Sure. And and we do the same. There's not a set requirement, uh, but we... In Arizona, we have three consultants and there's, you know, three major events per year between Sagebrush and Blast and Nama. So we try to just rotate and give, give everybody an opportunity to, to go to one each year uh, from a staff perspective. Thank you. So do we, uh, do we have any questions out there? I do not see any hands raised. Well, I, I, I will say this, that I, 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 Kathy, you did such a wonderful presentation during our Sagebrush event. And I really wanted to have us go a little deeper into the RSA 15 because there's a lot of valuable information that the vendors can can grasp onto and really help them understand uh, the bigger picture of where their program is going opposed to where their own little business is going. And I, I get that we need to watch where our businesses go, but it's also important to know where that bigger ship is headed. And mm -hmm. uh, I. I do want to thank the two of you for coming on and, and sharing your information with us. And I've kind of given everybody one last chance to ask questions here, but I, I do want to thank you for coming in and giving us such a great in-depth look at the RSA 15. And hopefully this helps some folks understand the deeper set of numbers that are in there. And, and it, it, it's definitely a driving force that should help those management committees who are looking at this, give them a little better idea where their program is headed. I'd like to reach out to uh, Kathy and Nathan for uh, taking the time out of their weekend like this to share their wisdom and knowledge. And more, more importantly, their commitment and dedication to the Randolph Shepherd program, not only for us existing operators, but for future generations. It's such a value, unique program, and it can only survive with people like you yourselves, uh, with your commitment, dedication, and understanding of the uh, the needs 
of the blindness community. So thank you so much on a personal and from RSVA itself. We have a hand raised. Amber, you have permission to talk. Are there any other RSVA sessions coming up this week or was this the last one? Our, our training today is pretty much what we have to offer for this for this group, yeah. Okay. There's two more sessions today. I mean, if you stay on these, this Zoom information, um, there's two more sessions that goes until uh, 6.45 p.m. Eastern. Okay. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to look up my CE code here to close out the session. Um, so first off, I do want to thank, thank you both, Kathy and Nathan, for coming in today. This was fantastic. And uh, just a real great look at at the RSA 15 and our closing uh, CE code is four, five, two, nine, three, four, five, two, nine, three. All right. And uh, we'll be back at uh, four o'clock for our next session. So um, just a, just a reminder um, that we do have some more training events coming up in October. We'll be in uh, Buffalo, New York. We'll be hosting our first East coast event. And uh, we'd love to see you folks there. Uh, you'll be seeing a lot more information coming out shortly on uh, our topics we're going to be discussing and uh, the hotel and all that kind of thing. And uh, certainly, we're going to be inviting you out next February in person to Sagebrush in Las Vegas, Nevada, where uh, I'll say it, the weather will be warmer than it was this last year, hopefully. <laughs> we don't have to suffer through any more ice cold weather. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to seeing all you folks in person. And uh, uh, yeah, so uh, Artis, is there anything you want to share about how to sign up for um, getting getting informed about all the our upcoming events, including our Tuesday evening call-ins once a month? Um, yes. If people want to sign up for the RSVA announce list, you just send an email to rsva-announce, the plus sign, subscribe at acblists.org. Don't forget the S in lists. Thanks. All right. We'll be looking forward to seeing you back here in a few minutes.